Uh, so welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. Today is a huge pleasure to have someone I'm an absolute massive fanboy of, uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. So Brad is one of the world's leading experts that comes to muscle building. He's probably written the best book I've ever read in terms of uh, muscle hypertrophy. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and get to share some of your knowledge with the audience. So thank you so much for your time, Brad. Yeah, my pleasure, Troy. Now, when it comes into muscle hypertrophy and people building muscle mass, I think there's a lot of confusion in regards to which way people turn. And I think the general public thinking that sometimes you need to lift heavier weights and do a lower term, lower reps um, versus maybe slightly higher rep work. From your studies and experience, what do you find has been the most effective method for people purely from a hypertrophy basis in terms of rep ranges and looking at aspects like that? Yeah, so I was uh, brought up, I mean, when I was going through school, the uh, axiom of a hypertrophy zone, this uh, 8 to 12 reps, 6 to 12 rep zone, uh, was promoted as, as really the best way to maximize muscle mass. And certainly it was stated that um, if you were lifting light loads, anything over about 15 repetitions or so, 15, 20 reps, that basically you were doing cardio and that it was muscular endurance and you weren't going to get big, you weren't able to uh, activate the highest threshold motor units, which are attached to the, which innervate the type two fibers, the highest threshold uh, muscle fibers. And um, that really has the compelling body of research over time has refuted that paradigm. And uh, we now have a new paradigm where there's really a very wide spectrum of loading ranges where you can develop muscle up to, in, in our research, around 40 reps or so, 30, 40 reps. And you could still develop muscle going past that. There does seem to be this peak tipping point, kind of a threshold where it will start to diminish. The results will, will not be as good. But 40, you do 40 reps that, you're doing more than that. Basically, it's pretty tough to do more than that. Uh, so now that is from a purely proof of principle standpoint. When it comes to practical application, a couple of things. There does seem to be a potential benefit, at least, to combining repetition ranges. So training in somewhat of a higher rep range and somewhat of a more moderate, lower to moderate rep range. We can speculate on mechanisms that perhaps the lower loads allow you to get stronger. And certainly that's been the case. So for, for muscle strength, lifting heavier certainly does promote greater strength gains. And perhaps that can allow you then to lift heavier loads and more moderate rep training. And with the lighter loads, perhaps either there might be specific type one hypertrophy, although that is still controversial and unequivocal. There can be potential benefits to enhancing buffering capacity, which allows you to, uh, buffering capacity would, would be where you're able to buffer the acidosis, lactic acid, to an, a greater extent and thus get more reps potentially in your moderate reps. And so anyway, my general, in summing this up, my general recommendation is to perform the majority, let's say 50% of your training or so 50, 60% in that six to 12, eight to 12, eight to 15 rep range, somewhere in there, moderate rep range, and then use the balance kind of on bookends, you know, 20% heavier loads, 20% lighter loads to try to get the best of all worlds if you're looking to maximize muscle mass. For the vast majority of people, it probably isn't going to matter. So I'm talking for bodybuilding enthusiasts or people who just really want to optimize their 
genetic potential. But if you're uh, the average gym goer, basically it frees you up to pretty much train however you want. That's interesting. I think one of the things I see with people why the higher rep training doesn't work is because it's maybe hard. Because when people get to 20 reps, they just stop where they probably could have done 30. Whereas if you have a heavy load, it physically stops you rather than you, you giving up first. Yeah, so interesting anecdotes. We carried out a study, uh, this is uh, probably seven years ago now, but uh, trained men, we had one group do your typical eight to 12 rep uh, range. We had the other group doing 25 to 35 rep range. Uh, there was, at the end of the study, it was an eight-week study, zero differences in hypertrophy. But the, uh, those in the 25 to 35 rep range, half of them puked during the first week or so, and uh, the, most of them did not like the training. The, the metabolic acidosis does take getting used to. Now, I will say, if you keep doing it, that does diminish to some extent. But yes, it is, it is harder to push. Uh, the metabolic acidosis is quite uncomfortable. And uh, you don't necessarily need to train to failure, but you need to get pretty close. And uh, it's not easy. Would you say, hypothetically, training at higher rep ranges in that style is actually worse for me from a health perspective because your body's like having to deal with maybe so much like metabolic waste and you're putting so much more strain maybe through your joints as well than maybe lower rep ranges or is that out of context? Well, I can't speak health wise as to, I'm not aware of any uh, good evidence as to a benefit for let's say metabolic health or cardiovascular health. Certainly I would say that it does allow you to train specifically or particularly with older individuals or people who have joint-related issues. Older individuals often have osteoarthritis. It's a very common ailment. And that, uh, yes, certainly training with lighter loads is a more appropriate strategy for those who have joint-related issues. It's taking some of the stress off the joints and thus allowing them to more freely move through a good range of motion without putting undue stress where it might be uncomfortable or perhaps injurious. How would your opinion change? Would your opinion change in terms of like general population when they just want to lose body fat when it comes comes to rep ranges, or would it be very much similar advice? Yeah, very much similar advice. Looking at resistance training or or trying to manipulate resistance training variables for optimizing body fat loss, in my opinion, certainly there's been no good research showing that. I I mean, there is some research showing that doing a circuit training approach might help to enhance body fat loss, but you can do, you can train. I I think a better strategy would be to train from a hypertrophy standpoint and then add in cardio. Now, I guess if time is of the essence, this is where nuances come in, but my general thought and kind of rule of thumb is that focus on your nutrition for your fat loss and then keep training more for whatever your specific goal is, either strength or hypertrophy power, whatever it is for uh, your resistance training. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, something that I listen to you talk about on Bed because podcast, interesting enough, interest set stretching is a bit of a mouthful. Um, that's something you don't commonly see people do. How was the research you've done on that looking? And what's your perspective? Yeah, so um, that study is in review right now. So um, I can say so much about it. But I, I, I mean, I will tell you that... Uh, we did find a potential benefit in the solely, so it was a calf stretch. And we, we did, basically it was a, within subject design where subjects had one leg 
randomized to do an intercept stretch in their cat and calf raises, and the other leg did not do intercept stretching. And uh, the intercept stretch was 20 seconds with the same load they used for the set. And there was a benefit for the soleus muscle, but not for the gastroc and certain speculation we've had. But uh, the evidence so far on that is, is somewhat mixed. If you look at the, uh, there's limited, fairly limited literature to date on this. Uh, there is, I think, a good, or, or at least a decent rationale, logical basis for why you might do it. But we still need more evidence. And without hard evidence, I would say that it's something that to p- potentially explore including in, in someone's routine. And that would be where you do your set. And then at the end of the set, you hold the position in a stretched position with the load. Could it be better for certain muscles than others? We don't know any of this yet. And, and what is the optimal stretch duration? So far in the literature, we've used, or, or the literature is used somewhere between 20 to 30 seconds. It potentially can be a good strategy without adding on additional time to a workout. So it can be a, somewhat of a time-saving strategy. You might be able to increase the density of training, so the, the loading density, without adding on to the time. And this is something that I think we do need more research on to get to be able to draw stronger conclusions on the topic. But I will say that certainly uh, it's a strategy that bears attention and that potentially might have benefit. 100%. Do you think, you spoke about individual muscle groups then, do you think different muscle groups um, and different muscles tend to prefer different rep ranges than others? Say, for example, like calves versus chest, for example, respond differently to different rep ranges? It's a good question. Certainly that's been speculated over time. We recently carried out a study in the calves. So we, we looked at the soleus muscle, which is very high slow twitch fibers, roughly 80% slow twitch or so on average, uh, which are your type one fibers versus the gastrocnemius, which are generally somewhere 50, 50, 60, 40 fast twitch, more of a mixed muscle. And um, found no, no differences in, uh, in the rep range. So we did it, one had a higher rep, 20 plus reps, the other had 10 and uh, really no differences. Now, once there was one study, could there still be a difference? I mean, one of the issues is, is that, first of all, people have different fiber types within their muscles. So even though the soleus is one of the very few that is purely a slow twitch in virtually all people, certainly the vast majority of people, but the majority of muscles in the human body are mostly somewhere between 40 to 60% slow fast. There are some outliers, like your marathon runners, often in the quads, are going to have very high slow twitch development. Your, your sprinters can have much more fast twitch. I remember seeing one of the, uh, it was a fiber biopsy of one of the top hurdlers. It was in, he was from Wales, I forgot his name. But anyway, uh, he had something like over, 50, uh, I think it was over 70% fast twitch fibers, there's a very high percentage of fast twitch fibers in the quads. And if you look at some of the uh, data on the long distance runners, it's on the other end. But the vast majority of people in the general public are somewhere between 40 to 60%. Unless you're biopsying people, you wouldn't even know what you're, whether you're fast twitch or slow twitch dominant in the given muscles. So uh, I think it's um, from a practical standpoint kind of moot. can have fun speculating on this, but other than for... Perhaps the soleus 
as far as the major muscles, that would be at the, there is some evidence the triceps might be slightly more fast, which in, in a couple of studies I've seen, but not to the point where I think that it would make much difference. Probably another like urban legend of the gym world that's been sort of spread around them, I guess. Yeah, well, in theory, I think it makes some sense. Now, I, I would say that there still may be benefits from higher reps to target the fibers within a given muscle. But um, that would just, to me, be more evidence for using a spectrum of loading ranges where you want to ensure you're targeting all the different fibers within a muscle. And by the way, there's some interesting uh, evidence in blood flow restriction training, which uses very light loads, that it is more specific to type 1 fibers. Whether that is a function of the lighter loads used in blood flow restriction or whether it's a function of something with the hypoxic effect of the uh, strategy, it's not not clear. That makes a lot of sense. In regards to uh, something else I think is a huge um, misconception, and I'd be interested to get your opinion as in regards to doms and muscle soreness and whether you need to have muscle soreness in terms of to actually build muscle mass because I've found that the best progress I've ever made is when I don't actually end up getting that much DOMS and I'm recovering pretty well because I think there's there's two sides to the coins that where I try and explain it to people is like you're like people are either overtraining or they're, they're under recovering so the nutrition and the and sleep is off which is why they're getting so sore or they're doing too much in terms of volume in the gym which is why they're getting hammered or getting soreness because I personally don't think you need to have huge amounts of DOMS to actually make progress I got crippled the other week training legs with someone and it was I could barely walk for like five days and it was highly unproductive. Um, where I think to that extent, it, it, I can't see how you're creating that much inflammation is actually going to be productive. I'd be interested in your input on that. Yeah, I, I totally concur that. I think it's pretty clear that uh, extensive muscle soreness would be a negative uh, to building muscle simply because it's going to interfere with your ability to train properly in upcoming sessions. And uh, basically then you are, you're reducing your ability to, uh, I I do think that uh, there might be a benefit to some, you know, a moderate amount of soreness, a modest amount potentially just because it's indicating there's a novel stimulus that was applied. I mean, the body tends to de- uh, develop because it is being subjected to a stimulus that it is not used to. And uh, the an element of some soreness may have uh, some gauge there to show that it was a novel stimulus, but I don't think it's certainly a requisite. I think certainly you can make good gains without any soreness. Would some modest soreness be used as a gauge that you've worked a muscle in a novel fashion it's possible i think that's an area that still needs um, better clarification and that goes again to whether muscle damage is even a uh, a factor in as a mechanistic factor in hypertrophy there's conflicting evidence on the topic there's some evidence that it may have some value whether whether it's through satellite cell addition whether it's through uh, inflammatory, acute inflammatory responses, which is evidence that that may help to mediate uh, hypertrophic uh, stimuli uh, signaling. And uh, there's other evidence that it may not be. So uh, I think that, again, mechanistically, we're still a long way from understanding 
what makes muscles grow the, and the interaction between them. We certainly know that, that mechanical stress, mechanical tension is a primary driving factor because you're not, certainly not going to optimize growth if there's not a, a clear mechanical stimuli that's being applied. But as far as the interaction between other potential mechanisms, I think we have a long way to go. And um, there are people who have very strong opinions on the topic. And in my humble opinion, anyone who has a strong opinion does not really engulf themselves in the literature because we just don't have causal. The, the extent of the literature at this point does not allow for the ability to draw causal inferences, at least to my satisfaction. So you mentioned seventh there in terms of like mechanical load for building muscle mass, which is very much my opinion that, that that's the only guaranteed way to, in some essence, to build muscles. If you get a lot stronger in a certain rep range, your body's going to be forced to basically grow from like an adaptive response from that. What's your opinion in terms of people who like the old school bodybuilding method of trying to get a pump to grow muscle? Do you think there's, in terms of the metabolic effect from that, do you think there's much merit to that? Or is that where there's still not much research Definitively. Yeah, so there's quite good ev uh, evidence that in test tubes, hyd uh, hydrated cells, so a pump basically is cellular hydration, that if you uh, hydrate a cell in a test tube, it will hypertrophy, uh, it will increase protein synthesis and it will decrease muscle protein breakdown, which is basically a hypertrophy home run, to use an American uh, term. That's, that's a good analogy, I like that, I'm going to write that one down. But whether that occurs in vivo in the, let's say from a pump, is that sufficient? The, are the processes the same? That's still very unclear. Uh, so the, I'll give you the theory is, is that when you hydrate a cell, you can think of it like an expanding water balloon, that there's pressure against the, against the membrane, the cellular membrane, which is called the sarcolemma in muscle, and that the if you keep hydrating a water balloon, it'll pop. And the, the cell is basically, the, all it cares about is survival. So conceivably that if a cell is hydrating, the cell, the extracellular pressure, the, pr the pressure against the extracellular structure causes a, an adaptive response that makes the cell want to reinforce its, its structure, its ultrastructure, and thus get stronger and hypertrophy. That's a logical basis. That doesn't mean it necessarily happens in practice. In a test tube, that's what seems to be working. So um, there's not good evidence that the pump, but th there's not ne negative evidence that it does either. There's no, it's just something that would be extremely difficult to study. I, I cannot think of a way that you would properly study that and be able to rule out confounding issues with, with a study like that. So um, at least that would be ethically uh, feasible in, in an IRB standpoint from being able to carry out the study that you could do in humans. Uh, perhaps in rodents, you might be able to get away. So bottom line is, is that uh, it is a strategy that uh, there's a logical basis for it. It may help. So doing, that's another reason doing some pump work, like some higher rep work may uh, help to contribute. It's probably not going to hurt. And the fact that it might have benefit. So including some pump work, could that be beneficial? Yes. Do you necessarily want to do all your work in that range? Probably not. Yeah, very good voice. Um, in regards to muscle tissue recovering, how long do you think it takes muscle to re repair and recover so you can train again generally? Because I know after a set point generally, it's like I refer to my, I can barely walk for five, six days. And I think that's 
probably all basically inflammation at that point. Um, how long would you say from the research you've seen it takes for a muscle tissue generally to recover? Well, that's a very loaded question because it depends upon the individual, the yeah. uh, how how hard they've trained, how new the exercise, how novel the exercise response is. So if you're doing the same like, movements over and over, the body has what's called a repeated bout effect where it gets, uh, the, the, it reduces the uh, recovery uh, that, that's needed because it's the muscle damage basically is not nearly as, as much. Nutritional status, sleep status, the, so recovery is age as well. So recovery is such an individual factor. Uh, the time course for muscle protein synthesis is generally around 48 hours or so. So that can be used as, a, I think, a decent gauge for how long roughly uh, kind of a minimum to allow between muscle groups that you probably want to allow 48 hours rest between uh, training a given muscle group. But um, there are some that uh, feel uh, you should train muscles every day. Uh, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think that is, uh, I don't think the literature shows that, uh, agrees with that. And I think there's reasons why that probably is not the best way to train. But um, th there is no clear evidence, what I would say. And, and by the way, it also, you have to look at how, how close to failure you're going on a lot of sets. You know, the, uh, certainly the more failure you're going to, the more fatigue that's generated as a general rule and the potentially the more time you're going to need for recovery. So the, the structure of one's routine is, is going to dictate in, in combination with their individual genetics and lifestyle factors. So trying to give a cookie cutter answer to that would be impossible. Fair enough. It's similar when I think I say people say to me, it's like, oh, how much protein does someone need? Like asking for like exact macros. And like generally I said, most people are a gram of protein per pound of body weight. But if someone's 400 pounds and 200 pounds of the weight, it's a different conversation, then, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, in, in terms of like aiding recovery, something that's becoming very popular is uh, cryotherapy, ice baths, and cold treatment. And I know that can obviously have a, an effect on the like inflammation process. What's your input on that potentially having like a negative impact maybe on like muscle hypertrophy? Yeah, there's quite compelling evidence now. There's multiple studies that have been done, both acutely looking at muscle protein synthesis and longitudinally looking at muscle growth that show a uh, detrimental effect of cold water immersion uh, on uh, muscle development. And um, it's not quite clear uh, mechanistically why. It's speculated that it's a, um, the reduction in blood flow. Basically, cold help, uh, has, impairs the blood flow response to muscles and the way muscles optimally synthesize protein and repair themselves. And... Uh, and regenerate is through blood, nutrients being delivered through the blood. It also does decrease the inflammatory response, but the acute inflammatory response, as I mentioned earlier, seems to have a beneficial effect. Now it's again, not clear trying to tease out what are the reasons for negative effects. Now that said, that's when you continually use those modalities over time if you did that once, like if you just were, like you talked about, you had a really intense leg workout where you were really sore, that might end up helping you get back into the gym quicker. So there is some evidence of a beneficial recovery effect. So could that outweigh the negative effects? Certainly if you're doing it once, is that going to 
impair your long-term muscle hypertrophy? You know, no. So the fact that it's getting you back to training quicker, everything is a trade-off. So uh, I certainly, the, the bottom line here is I certainly would not recommend the repeated use of ice baths, of cold water immersion for recovery. Selective use, that's a cost-benefit that probably, uh, if you need it, just like taking a, an occasional anti-inflammatory drug, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. There's evidence that that has negative effects on muscle growth over time, at least for younger individuals. But uh, if you take it once, you know, you're feeling really sore and you want to take a Motrin or whatever, then do I think that's going to negatively affect your muscle building ability? No. On the other end of the spectrum, so I personally like saunas and heat more than cold because I like the cold. Hence why I moved to Dubai recently. What's your perspective on that in terms of recovery? Is there any negative impacts in terms of muscle growth from that side of things? I, I would have thought yeah, so, it would aid recovery because obviously increased blood flow from heat and vasodilation and all that sort of stuff. So that really is the opposite. So there's less evidence, first of all, on that. There's, we now have a pretty good body of evidence on cold water immersion where I can make, uh, I can draw what I think are fairly confident conclusions. The evidence on heat is less clear. When I say less clear, there's just not a lot of, of research that's been done today. But the limited research we have does show promise. Certainly, it doesn't seem that heat has negative effects, at least at this point, with the studies we have. And there, there may be beneficial effects. So I think that is something that, at least at this point, would be a strategy worth uh, employing. That uh, utilizing until we get better evidence. Uh, we can only go by what we have at this point. And I think that uh, there's promise to it that, uh, like you said, it might be due to enhancing blood flow or perhaps other mechanisms we don't know at this point, but that it might be a, uh, a strategy that you could try to, uh, to enhance recovery and to perhaps even enhance the growth process. Uh, another random recovery thing that's come to mind, which is something I'm not particularly a big fan of when people do it to warm up, there's a bit of a hate mind. If people want to do it and they think it works and it's great, it's um, foam rolling. Do you think, any, you think there's any benefits to say into like even like foam rolling therapy work in terms of like I don't know, uh, releasing fascia and things like that to, to allow more muscle growth? No, I, I don't. Uh, I'm very skeptical of that research. Can I conclusively uh, say that uh, it doesn't? help no but i'm highly skeptical it's just from a logical basis fascia doesn't work that way it's trying to fascia is extremely strong tissue that to me is not a limitation of the growth process that your fascia is holding in the muscle i do think there may be some benefits um from a recovery standpoint to uh, foam rolling as with the massage as well if nothing else, it might have a placebo benefit where anything that allows you to get back into the gym quicker, uh, if you need to, you know, if, if you're overly sore, say, uh, could be a help. And um, I'm not sure that there are mechanistic benefits. There may be. Uh, it's, again, tough to, it's tough to sham those types of uh, studies. When I say sham, usually when you're looking at a when you want to carry out a study, you're going to carry out a study, let's say foam rolling versus a placebo, meaning that it's a, a, um, an intervention that has, that doesn't do anything. So I'll give you, for instance, for those who you probably know this, but many might, uh, might not. If you're going to uh, look at a supplement, let's say you're going to look at this next best supplement for gaining muscle. 
you would generally give one group a supplement and you'd give another group a supplement that was a placebo that would have like sugar in it or just nothing that they would think they're getting. So all of them think they're getting this magic pill, but only one of the only one group actually is. And that way you can see whether there was a placebo benefit with foam rolling or massage. You basically know that you're getting one, you know, if you're foam rolling and you know, if you're getting a massage. So, um, it's tough to uh, to know whether any results are, if there are, are due to a placebo effect from just thinking that, hey, this feels really good, now I'm, I feel better, or is it really something within the treatment that's causing the effect? Tough to say, but there does at least seem to be, even if it is a placebo, that is a win in my opinion, uh, because if it gets you back into the gym quicker, if it allows you to uh, gain your function back, I think uh, it's a strategy worth considering. 100%. Now, when it comes to cardio affecting muscle growth, I'd be interested in your opinion on Some people, I think a lot of the guys in particular are petrified that they can do any cardiovascular work and they're going to look like a marathon runner straight away. Um, and I think there's probably an element of obviously the devil's in the dose. What, what's the research you've done, you've seen um, in terms of that effect of obviously cardiovascular work on muscle hypertrophy? or even atrophy in terms of losing muscle mass, maybe? Well, I think you kind of summed it up well that the devil is definitely in the dose. Uh, so, and it's not only in the dose, but then it also comes down to what type of cardio are you talking about? Are you talking about walking versus running versus sprinting? Uh, so there's a lot to unpack when you're looking at the type of cardiovascular exercise. You have duration, you have intensity, and you have frequency. So those are all factors that will be must be considered. And when you look at research, trying to tease them out is somewhat difficult. I, I think that the evidence is quite good now that in moderate doses of cardio, certainly you're not going to worry about looking like a marathon runner, how much that might have negative effects on muscle mass. Uh, interesting you bring it up. There was just a paper published yesterday showing um, that on the muscle fiber level, so when they looked at type 1 and type 2 fibers, there was a, a modest but um, statistically, quote-unquote, significant negative effect of concurrent training. So doing cardio and, and weight training together, resistance training. Whether it was difficult for them to tease out the effects of duration, intensity, and so some of the other factors there. The same group, actually, uh, uh, though, did a made analysis on whole muscle hypertrophy. So with just to give some clarity here, when you're looking at muscle fiber growth, you do a biopsy. Basically, you stick a needle into someone, you pull out tissue and you look at it under a microscope and you know, investigate the changes, you measure the growth. With whole muscle hypertrophy, you're looking at like MRI, so you're, at, you're scanning the person. You're not doing an invasive uh, procedure. You're doing like a scan, an MRI, an ultrasound, CT scan. And you're looking at the entire muscle, not the different fiber types. So this new study showed some potentially detrimental effects on type 1 fiber growth, more so than type 2. Uh, their previous meta-analysis showed no difference, no negative effects. Um, and by the way, a meta-analysis, for those who don't know, is when you look at the body of studies, you pull all the given studies on the topic, and you then try to make one big study out of multiple little studies to draw conclusions. And um, the uh, bottom line is, is that when I start looking at this literature and kind of trying to tease out the differences, 
certainly on a logical basis, there's going to be an interference effect at some point. At what point that occurs, I think, again, it will be highly individual. It's going to depend on things like A number one. We talked about the, the programs themselves. So what is the volume of the cardio program? What is the, so the duration of the activity, the intensity of the activity, the frequency? And also the same thing with the resistance training. How many days a week are you training? How, how long? What is the volume of, those, of the sessions you're doing? Uh, and then you have to look at the individual, their genetics age, lifestyle factors, age is going to enter into it. So there's no one, uh, I, I can't give a, just a one size fits all answer to this other than saying that at some point there will be a negative, but that for most people, if you want to add in some cardio, it's going to be healthy for you. Certainly there is a lot of cardiovascular and health related, cardiorespiratory health related benefits. And if you're going to do a lot of it, I certainly wouldn't recommend being a marathon runner if, if you want to look like a bodybuilder. So where that goes in between is going to, you need to use your own expertise as a guide and also do trial and error. I would start slowly and then add in and kind of monitor yourself and see how you feel. You certainly, performance can be a gauge. If you start seeing performance decrements, that's a big, you know, obviously a big gauge. But usually once you start seeing performance decrements, you've gone too far. So you want to try to nip that in the bud before that takes hold. Do you think hit cardio has more of an aggressive effect than steady state cardio in that aspect? Not really clear. And again, I, I think that there is a, uh, it would depend how much hit cardio you're doing and how much steady state cardio. So, I mean, if you're walking, you know, if you walk for an hour a day, is that going to trash your muscle growth? Probably not. If you're jogging for an hour a day, you know, if you're running for an hour a day, so you're starting to get into this, you know, where is the steady state zone? Uh, and then vice versa, are you doing three 20-minute hit sessions or are you doing six 30-minute hit sessions? Uh, and what in between there? The, an interesting thing that was brought up in the meta-analysis I mentioned yet, that was just published yesterday on fiber type it seemed that running had a more detrimental effect than cycling did, um, which actually is consistent with the previous made analysis that was done almost 10 years ago now. Uh, so there might be something to that, that the uh, ground reaction forces, not clear why, but that doing more activities that don't involve ground reaction forces may be less detrimental to the uh, response. And, and by that, you mean like the uh, exercise where you have like a foot strike, essentially? Yeah. So doing things like cycling or um, elliptical, uh, yeah. maybe stair-stepping. Yeah. Personally, I'm a big fan of the cross train. I think it's probably like the least stressful on your joints. Have anything. I think running, um, I got a lot of flack. I get a lot of flack of this because I said all the time that running is probably the worst way for people to lose weight because if someone's overweight, they can't run very far. And then they also they end up, their joints hurt before they can actually burn many calories anyway so they're better off just going for a walk in the first place because it's they can walk for probably an hour 90 minutes fairly easily and burn more calories anyway yeah agreed i, I also again would say that uh, from a weight loss standpoint it's primarily going to be your diet so exercise mm. is really important for maintenance certainly resistance training in particular maintenance of muscle mass not losing uh, lean mass as you're dieting the contribution to overall fat loss is relatively modest unless you're doing a lot of 
exercise. You need to really be doing a lot of exercise to have meaningful effects on, on fat loss. That's interesting. Um, in regards to like sets and volume of sets to elicit hypertrophy for over a week, do you have like research in regards to that in terms of what has seemed to work best for people or do you have a, like a, an upper limit where you say most people should probably not try and like cross over the line in terms of, again, going down the same analogy I said it's like the devil's in the dose going too far? I mean, certainly. So I've always speculated that there is kind of an inverted U response and that certainly at some point doing more set volume is going to be superfluous and potentially it could be detrimental. I and mean, if you're in the gym eight hours a day, if you're doing two, 200 sets per muscle group, obviously, certainly it's not going to be beneficial. And I would think that you'd start seeing an overtraining effect at some point. I, I would say that I think that my views on volume is number one, we shouldn't necessarily be looking at it as one guideline that um, you don't necessarily need to do the same volume all the time for all your sets. So I, I do think there might be benefits to periodizing volume where you're doing some lower volume, then bump it up to some more moderate and then some quote unquote higher. And that's going to vary. The definitions of lower, moderate and higher will vary between individuals. Uh, the literature seems to uh, show um, somewhere between 10 to 20 sets on an overall basis per muscle group probably is a good general gauge. Uh, some people can do well on lower volume. Some people might be doing better on higher volumes, but I, I would say this, that we need to look at the overall, not just per muscle group, but the overall number of sets that you're doing for your, your whole body is I think a better way to look at that. This is systemic effective training. So when we look at how many total, let's say you're doing a hundred sets per week for all the muscle groups, how are you then going to divvy up those sets? Do you necessarily need to be doing the same amount of sets for each muscle group? Personally, I think that is misguided, and I think that the evidence would seem to indicate there might be beneficial effects of specialization cycles where you're giving more volume to certain muscles, and in turn, then, you'd want to be giving less volume to uh, muscles that respond better. So I think managing the volume response uh, is more something that needs to be done with the thought of the total amount of sets per week, what are we looking at total sets per week, and then saying, hey, which uh, muscles might need some more work, which muscles are better responders, they might need less work. And most people generally have muscle groups that don't respond as well or that are underdeveloped vis-a-vis -vis other muscle groups. And I think that's where the, uh, the science can be used uh, in combination with someone's expertise to uh, optimize program design. Makes a lot of sense. Um, a few last questions for you, Bryce, and I know you're a busy guy. And what are you most excited about in terms of new research and things coming out? Is there anything you're working on you think is particularly interesting or innovative? Yeah, there's, I mean, I'm a kid in a candy store because I was a <laughs> personal trainer for many years and I'm investigating all the things that I always dreamed about and always, or always wondered about, certainly. I mean, first of all, I think that we discussed earlier, I think getting better a better grasp of mechanistically what makes muscle grow will happen over the coming years. It's going to take a while just because of the difficulty in carrying out these studies. But the more we can learn about what makes muscle grow, the better we can design. First of all, the better we can think about different strategies for training and the better we can design applied training studies to test to better test certain uh, strategies. 
I'll give you a little insight. We're carrying out a study now that is just finishing up. Um, I think we have two more weeks left of data collection. We'll finish the study, which I think is really exciting. And I've always wanted to carry it out for a while. Uh, I'll actually give a shout out. This was uh, the um, concept of this was um, thought up by Jared Feather, who you might know. Uh, Jared uh, is, uh, works with Renaissance Periodization, Mike Israel. He's a pro bodybuilder now, but he was uh, going to use this for his dissertation. He was going to go on for his PhD, and he wanted to do his PhD and carry it out in my lab, and ultimately decided not to do his PhD. And I said, Jared, I said, this is a study that needs to be carried out. He said, go ahead. He goes, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, just take the liberty. And I said, I'll, so anyway, he's part of the study now uh, in terms of one of the co-authors. But we just finished carrying it out in my lab, and we're looking at whether there's a benefit to increasing load versus increasing repetitions. Is one better than the other? So the standard, you kind of mentioned this earlier, the standard thought is, is that you stay in a given rep range, and we're choosing like a moderate rep range, 10 reps. Do you want to stay at 10 reps and then keep adding weight to stay in that, to keep the, you know, the fatigue at 10 reps? Or can you just start out with 10 reps and then keep doing more reps? Uh, with that same load. So if let's say you started out squatting 250 pounds, we're in the pound system here in America. I know the, the rest of the world's on kilograms, but uh, I'll talk from what we know. So let's say you start out a squat for 10 reps, 250 pounds. Uh, do you keep adding load to that 250? So you stay in that uh, zone or can you stay with the 250 pounds and do 11 reps, 12 reps and just keep going. And uh, we're carrying out an eight week study. Like I said, we're, we should be finishing up data collection soon. It's exciting. We have, uh, we're doing a lot of different uh, measures. We're looking at measures of strength, of muscle endurance, of certainly hypertrophy at multiple, multiple sites, multiple measures. So uh, I'm really excited about that. And I think it'll uh, provide some interesting insights into uh, strategies for progression, progression strategies for muscle growth. When you do these studies, do you have like a gut feeling at the beginning of what you think the outcome is going to be? And is, are you often right or wrong? No, um, I, I do have a gut feeling. And uh, I would say that my batting average, if you're a baseball player, batting average of 500 is really good. But uh, that's not very good as a researcher. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. Uh, my thoughts, I could just tell you in some of the things we talked about, the uh, loading, I always thought when I carried out the studies, our initial studies on light loads, I had I was quite confident that we were not going to see any benefit, that, that you would see a detriment to using lighter loads. That didn't pan out. Uh, I thought there would be a detriment to uh, longer rest intervals. That didn't pan out. And study. I mean, just m multiple studies I've carried out. But sometimes the blind uh, squirrel finds the nut, and I'm right too. So, yeah, you're, you're going to have your own intuitions as to what's going to occur. But uh, ultimately, the data are what the data are. So uh, you let the... Let the data speak for themselves, and that's why you carry out the studies, and that's why it's exciting because gym, so what's called bro science, is based on the fact that people go with their gut. They feel that, hey, this is what I'm getting results from, so that works. And science provides a systematic, objective way of looking at a topic. So while we might have our own intuitions, you got to be willing to uh, not only be open to being wrong, but willing to admit you're wrong when, you, when the data show you are. Have you done any studies under, on rep speed out of interest, actually? It's an interesting one in terms of like, say, like time under tension in terms of 
uh, if there's a difference between someone like say doubling the, the tempo so say doing four seconds up and down versus two seconds up and down yeah, i was involved in a study that did that with um east the eccentric action not concentrically okay doesn't really seem to be much um, in, i've been involved in a couple of those studies and i think the evidence is equivocal but i'm not convinced that uh there's much benefit in that respect i don't think within a, a certain range i think um you know, slowing it down to three the eccentric three maybe four seconds probably isn't a negative and um certainly uh, concentrically i don't think there's any benefit um to slowing it down beyond a couple of seconds and and i will say that i just again personal perspective i think a more important uh, aspect to rep speed is having a mind muscle connection where you're visualizing the muscle i think the tempo takes care of itself as long as you're controlling the load and making trying to make the muscle do the work then the some people might be able to do that at slightly higher or, or lower tempos but I, I don't certainly think or i think there's some evidence that the slowing down the rep substantially has a negative effect and certainly doesn't have a positive effect so going anything over about four or five seconds i'm not there is no good evidence I'm aware of that it would have beneficial effects. And there are some studies that show potential negative effects. Now, if anyone listening to this who hasn't bought it already, I'd highly suggest you check out Brad's book, which is Science Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. Do you have any more books or any more, anything else coming out in the next couple of years, Brad? I have a book called The Max Muscle Plan. It's the second edition of a book that I uh, published uh, a dozen years ago now. It just came out in... Uh, when did it come out? I think May or, or or last May. So it's been a while, last September. I forget sometimes. But anyway, it's been uh, six months or so since the book came out. But it's it's more of a consumer book. So the book you mentioned, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, is a textbook uh, that is for those who really want to delve into the science, the hard science. And um, Mac Muscle Plan is more consumer-oriented book that wants, for people who want a template of, uh, you know, kind of, Give me, give me a template of how to uh, make muscles grow. And I teach them how to customize that template to their own needs. I'll have the, I mean, that's my uh, Amazon ad to cart then. But uh, thank you so much for your time today, Brad. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation. So for anyone who's enjoyed the podcast, make sure you leave us a five-star review. Tag myself and Brad on uh, Instagram. And what's your Instagram handle, Brad, for anyone to go and check out your, the rest of your content or anywhere else to find uh, you? Yeah, I, I have different handles on different social platforms. I think on Instagram is at Brad Schoenfeld, PhD. If you just search me on Instagram, you, you'll come up with me. And I'm on Twitter as well, and I'm on Facebook. But I think Instagram is at Brad Schoenfeld, PhD. Yeah, Twitter, yeah Brad Schoenfeld, PhD. That's the one. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes below. So, easy for everyone to find. Cool. So, brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Brad, and have an awesome day. My pleasure, Brad.